Good morning. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 36. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their fa- of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are, pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, 
And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. We return to the book of Genesis. We had taken a break from Genesis for the summer. But Genesis, as, as you may recall from, from last winter and spring, Genesis is a book about beginnings. The beginning of creation and all that we know of the universe, the beginning of humanity, even the beginning of humanity's depravity and conflict. And it's all been, it was all preserved, uh, recorded masterfully, poetically, presumably by, by Moses. And, and I don't believe that Genesis is some piecemeal compilation of myths and legends. I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that Genesis is a unified historical narrative and an ancient masterpiece. And Genesis really sets the stage. Genesis, Genesis establishes the plot line for the entire Bible. Genesis sets the stage for the history of salvation. The preacher James Boyce decades ago uh, recalled the fact that in the 1970s, Alex Haley's book and subsequent TV series, Roots, was a very big deal in the United States uh, because in Roots, Haley uh, traced the story of one African-American family and by doing that helped solidify a shared identity for an entire race of people. Well, in a similar way, Genesis chapters 12 through 50, in a similar way, in these chapters, Moses imparted a common identity and purpose to a nation of liberated, migrating slaves. By tracing the story of one family, their ancestor Abraham and his wife Sarah, their children, their grandchildren, and their great grandchildren. And we saw that there are, there are three cycles in, in this family story. There's the cycle of Abraham and Sarah. And that was an illustration we learned of how to simply live by faith in the God of the Bible. Living by faith through an uncertain existence. A lot of uncertainty in life. How do you live by faith in the God who calls you into a relationship with him? And then, as we looked at Isaac 
and his son Jacob, and we considered the Isaac-Jacob cycle, uh, we learned how to live by faith through complicated family dysfunction. And finally, in the Joseph cycle, the Joseph cycle is going to conclude the Genesis history. And in the Joseph cycle, we're going to discover how to live by faith through conflict and through injustice and through suffering. So what a tragic episode, right? This banishment of young Joseph to Egypt as a slave. You read in horror and, and we have this indignation at the brothers and their jealousy, their hatred, their treachery. And we grieve with Jacob. Jacob, after losing his, his wife, his favorite wife, Rachel, now loses Rachel's oldest son, Joseph. But given all the injustice of the matter and, and given the crime that was committed... The tragedy was also the bitter fruit of family dysfunction. And I really want to look at that today as we begin to talk about Joseph's life. In a fallen world, you know this, and if you don't know it yet, you'll find out. In a fallen world, stuff happens. We can't avoid, we can't escape tragedy. But have you ever invited more problems by poorly responding to old problems? I have. And what I hope you glean from the beginning of Joseph's story today is that God's wisdom helps us respond to tragedy without causing more tragedy. And as we consider that, we're going to talk about three things. How Jacob responded to the tragedies of his life. How Jacob responded. We're also going to look at our own responses and finally, we're going to talk about how God responds to tragedy. Jacob's response, our response, and God's response to tragedy. Jacob's response to tragedy caused more of it. Jacob's response to raising Joseph without Rachel was basically this unguarded favoritism. Now, I have six children. Becky and I have six children. We're not trying to compete with Jacob. But our six children span, uh, span exactly 16 years in age. 16-year span. Now, my older children might tell you that I was less patient, maybe less content, less joyful when they were little than I am now as an older man raising their little siblings. And so in a sense, I can see Jacob as an older man cherishing Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin. Uh, let's remember that their mother, Rachel, you know, Jacob had four wives, basically, as far as we can tell. Rachel was the only woman Jacob ever loved. Rachel couldn't get pregnant for years. She finally gets pregnant. She has Joseph later in life. After Joseph, she has Benjamin, but Rachel died delivering Benjamin. And so I can see, I can see Jacob cherishing uh, those two boys as, as the only remaining thing that he could cling to 
after losing his wife, Rachel. So I can see him cherishing Joseph, but to a fault. It was the whole family knew that he loved Joseph more than anybody else. All the kids knew. They all knew this. It was obvious. It was blatant. It was basically scandalous. They all saw this, and and most evident in the fact that Joseph receives from Jacob this amazing coat, this elaborate royal-like robe that, that Joseph would wear. Now, Joseph's response to Joseph's response to losing his mother at an early age and his subsequent response to some pretty remarkable dreams was, I would say, maybe immature. I think we have to cut Joseph as a young man, as a teenager, some slack. Uh, We don't really see in Joseph an arrogance, a cunning, as much as we see a kid who's naive a kid who lacks discernment in how to handle a situation when you're one of the youngest in the household. Nobody likes a tattletale, which is exactly how Joseph is portrayed in the early part of the chapter. And nobody likes a little kid talking about how he's special. Um, Joseph uh, basically has this show-and-tell policy with his remarkable dreams. And what you see is a kid who lacks discernment. He, he doesn't get the fact that tattletaling is a, bad, is a bad policy when you're one of the youngest in a large family. He doesn't get the fact that if he shares verbatim with his older brothers the content of his amazing dreams, they're not going to respond very well. But the older brother's response to Joseph and his special status in in the household is what? It is jealousy that gives birth to outright hatred. Now remember, uh, some of of us who are walking through Genesis early in the year, remember, to the ancients, inheritance was of the utmost importance. And the oldest child, by birthright, received a double portion of the inheritance. The oldest child got twice the share of all the other sons. And how many sons are here? Jacob's inheritance will have to be divided someday between 12 people, and the one with the birthright, traditionally the oldest, gets twice as much as every other brother. And the whole family knows that the oldest three boys are not going to get the birthright. You have to go back in Genesis, but you discover the oldest, Reuben, uh, commits a heinous act. He sleeps with one of his father's wives, who's the mother of some of his brothers. Reuben does this not so much out of sensual passion, but scholars state that the reason Reuben did that uh, was to assert his dominance as the oldest brother. It was his way of saying, I'm going to inherit all that my dad has, even his concubines. And Jacob heard about it. Reuben was out. And everybody knew. But then if you remember Simeon and Levi, the second and the third, they basically massacred an entire village because their younger sister Dinah was abducted there. So, so now, because of their treachery and, and their vengeance, 
right? Wreaking a stink in the community uh, for the whole family. Now Reuben and Simeon are out. I'm sorry, Reuben and Simeon and Levi are now all out and everybody knows it. So you have nine remaining candidates trying to figure out who is going to get the birthright and the double portion of our dad's inheritance. So the cloak, the marvelous robe is a huge deal. Because to the ancients, elaborate robes like that represented inheritance. Those robes were worn by kings and queens and dignitaries. And if you give one kid a robe like that, that means you are grooming him to take over the family business. So everyone knows that little Joseph is going to get most of the goods. And so in, they also knew that dreams were really important. The ancients understood dreams to be divine messages. And I think the brothers believed those dreams. I think that's why they hated Joseph even more. Because if God is telling the family that this boy will be in charge, well, that sealed, that sealed their hopelessness and despair, that, it, that any of them would be the one. And so their hatred, their jealousy was entrenched. And it just boiled more and more, fed more and more by, by Jacob's blind favoritism of Joseph. And that's what led them to committing such a heinous crime against their own flesh and blood. So Jacob's unguarded response to tragedy in a complex household infused a poison into that family. Joyce Baldwin, one commentator on Genesis, wrote, It is remarkable how much of the Joseph narrative hinges on so ordinary a failing as a parent's favoritism. Can you not mistake this family for the all-American family? Now, our responses to tragedy, your responses to tragedy requires the wisdom of God, desperately requires God's wisdom. Look, uh, some of you, many of us, grew up in blended households, in mixed households who may have looked very much like Jacob's household. Uh, you grew up in mixed families where relationships were just as complicated as they were for Jacob and his wives and all their sets of children. Um, some of you had full siblings and half siblings and step siblings all at the same time. My wife did. My wife still does. Uh, multiple sets of parents. And every relationship, every individual relationship requires a different dynamic, a different approach. It's complex. Some of you uh, not only were raised in a similar environment, you're in it right now. You're, you're leading and parenting and shepherding blended families. And I have the utmost respect for what you do because it is incredibly difficult and complex and requires wisdom and patience beyond what a seemingly standard household would require. We even have resources for individuals and couples and families going through that right now or, or remembering what it was like when you grew up. That's why we have a book table. It's so that we can encourage one another with resources. And you know what? If you read, well, I'm encouraging you to read and pray. 
and then talk to us. Talk to one of us whom you respect and trust. And if you come to me and I don't have the answers or the insight you need, I will introduce you to somebody who does have the right insight. But for all of us, because this Jacob situation, a blended family, a complicated dynamic like that may not be your struggle. It may not be what you're dealing with. Uh, But for all of us, regardless of your circumstance, we need in our tragedies God's wisdom to respond without adding insult to injury. Now, this is such a complicated situation in Genesis 37. There are so many applications uh, that we, uh, we, could, uh, we could address for our own lives. Because of time, we can only deal with one in a worship service. Uh, this is the one I'm going I'm to address today. Now, maybe you weren't expecting this application, but here it is. Have you considered, even in the wake of your tragedies, becoming a servant? Have you considered in response to whatever whatever has happened, whether you're in Jacob's position, whether you're in the position of those brothers or of Joseph himself, have you ever considered the fact that for the Christian, you are a servant? That's your identity. If you're not a Christian, if you're still exploring what it means to be a Christian, I'm glad you're here. One of the amazing things about Christianity is that it tells its inheritance that they are, because of their Lord Jesus, servants. At any point in life, even when they're down, they are servants like their master Jesus. And this has great impact. For instance, the Apostle Paul told the church in Philippi in the first century, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Christianity teaches people that you're never in a position, no matter how bad things are, you're never in a position to demand full service. But rather to serve. And this is what is so beautiful and unique about Christianity is because of this identity, this servant-minded identity, it puts you in a posture. uh, Knowing that you're a servant is a powerful antidote to strong emotions like anger and jealousy and misguided affection. Knowing that you are a servant, taking on the posture of a servant is a powerful antidote to the types of dynamics that we see Jacob and his sons dealing with, to the things that you've already dealt with and are dealing with right now. A servant-minded mentality would have helped Jacob contextualize his, his intense affection for Joseph against the backdrop of the rest of the family and what their needs were. A servant's mindset and posture would have helped those brothers would have helped Joseph himself. When you remember servanthood, even in the midst of your loss, your grief, tragedy, you begin to loosen your grip on your own demands. A self-serving and, well, a self-serving self-love will, will cripple you from learning how to walk again when tragedy has knocked you down. 
It will cripple you. Self-love is what Jacob was dealing with. It wasn't love for Joseph. A parent's obsession with a child is not child love. It's self-love. Jacob's, Jacob's infatuation with Joseph was about Jacob, not about Joseph. He wasn't helping Joseph at all. Self-love, if you nurture it, if you nurse and pamper self-love as if it's some kind of severance package for all the tragedy you've been through, uh, that, will, will, that will blind you to the needs of other people. It will, it will produce, it can produce in you such a hatred over time, not immediately, but over time that you would even be willing to banish from your presence and from your life, the people who are closest to you. Responding in self-love to our tragedy will always beget more tragedy. But Jesus never responded to tragedy that way. His response to tragedy was not self-serving. It was just the opposite. Our hatred of God was truly a tragedy. Humanity's ongoing consistency to have contempt and distrust for our creator has just led from one bad decision and response of, over tragedy to another. That's the, that's the story of human history. It's the story of our lives. One bad response to tragedy after another, guided by, ultimately, a distrust for God even a contempt for our creator. And God's solution, like his solution with Joseph's situation, was ironic and unforeseen and inconceivable. You look at Joseph and how Joseph, God's answer to rescue Joseph from, from his, bro, their, his brother's readiness to kill him was what? Sold, trafficked into slavery. That was, that was the immediate solution. More tragedy just to escape the death threats of his brothers who were ready to kill him. Just like that, God's solution in Jesus was unexpected, was inconceivable, and even ironic. Jesus said when he came to earth, he told his disciples, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just like Joseph, Jesus was cherished by his heavenly father. Jesus was God's only son. And Jesus, uh, despite the fact that he was perfect, that he had not said anything to cause the hatred and the distrust, that he had not done anything to incite his brother's hatred of him, Jesus, the precious son, was disrobed. Jesus was stripped of his father's protection, of his father's love. Jesus was disrobed of his father's glory and affection when he hung on a cross bearing humanity's sin and wickedness and ugliness. Jesus was scorned by his brothers. And that's all of us. And cast into the depths of the earth. And when all had seemed like it was a total loss 
God brought victory up from the grave. You're going to see redemption over the next several weeks in Joseph's story and with those brothers and with Jacob. But at the moment, Joseph had to trust that redemption would come. And the narrator, like a master storyteller, leaves us hanging and waiting to learn about Joseph's fate. But look, if God responded to the greatest tragedy like that, then you can trust him to respond to your loss, to your crisis in a redemptive way. And so my encouragement to you today is to just remember the last words of Psalm 27. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. God's wisdom, and just one example of it today, is to remember that we in Christ, like him, are servants. Even in the midst of injustice and pain and affliction that is heaped upon us. God's wisdom helps us respond to tragedy with patience, serving one another, even our enemies, even serving our enemies, and expecting God's redemption. In newsflash, God's redemption may not be the type of help you're predicting. It may look very different. God's grace breaks the tragic cycle of one bad response after another. Trust him. And maybe for the first time, let him speak truth and wisdom into your response pattern to all the garbage that you have to deal with in your life. Let him take the lead the next time and apply his wisdom to guide your grief and your disappointment. And I am excited for us as we begin to see how God's ironic solution redeems Joseph, redeemed that entire family, and set the, the, set the stage for the history of a nation and the coming of a Savior and your very life. Pray with me. Our Father, we, we just pause for a minute at the very beginning, at the very brink of, of this cliff, and we're going to dive into Joseph's life and the complicated dynamics, his relationships with his siblings who deeply hurt him. Uh, Father, give us your wisdom on how to interpret his story so that, so that we come away with it wiser and um, more ready to embrace the world and embrace each other and even embrace uh, the tragedies we've had to face. We ask that you would give us your grace to apply your wisdom to our grief, to our loss, to our tragedy. Uh, would you do that? And we ask it in full confidence knowing uh, that you raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. In his name we thank you. Amen.